people are unexpected. Things are never predictable. And having fun with the process of composting the shit that we have, <laughs> kind of stuck in our in our mind state, I think is something that collective housing does. I'm Travis. I am fascinated by collective housing because I think that it is a model for a sharing, nurturing society and the microcosms of collective houses and how they operate can, I think the practices of that have macroscopic impacts in how communities can connect with one another. And I think the details in every person's stories are so relevant to the universal experiences other people face when they're trying to share a space with others. It's a pretty personal and can be a challenging thing. And it's also like a huge learning experience. And I learned so much from being around collective houses, even just having potlucks at people's homes or subletting in different ones. So my purpose with coming here is definitely uh, curiosity and to share those stories and learn how those stories might inform how we create care webs. Today we are interviewing Julia. Julia is a good friend of ours. She is a Japanese-Canadian musician, performer, and physics teacher who skillfully fuses relational and rational perspectives. Drawn to a path of lifelong learning, she moved away from her hometown to pursue a nomadic lifestyle. After eight years in a collective home in Vancouver, Julia unexpectedly discovered a newfound sense of belonging to the community she grew up in. For Julia, living collectively has become an art, offering valuable life lessons on communication, boundaries, and connection. In her quest for synergy, Julia offers reflections on how collective living has shaped her life. We wanted to have Julia on and to talk about things. Um, okay, I'm going to deal with this. There's a lizard on Travis's shoulder just for the audience. <laughs> just a little mini dragon, our co-host. Wow, you look like Miss Frizzle. Okay, that might be um, giving my whole life a full circle because... <laughs> I no one's made that association yet, but that totally makes sense. I think Miss <laughs> Frizzle was probably part of my queer awakening as a child, actually. <laughs> as in, like, wow, this is the type of lifestyle that I could aspire to. To begin, this might be a little redundant or obvious for us. But I'm wondering if maybe you could share what a loose definition of collective housing or, or what you see collective housing as from your experience. It's interesting because I feel like there's definitely different styles of collective housing. For me personally, there is almost a lifestyle that is synchronized within the house that allows for a collective house. And what that might look like for some people is like playing music every day together or cooking together, or having meals every once a month or having housing meetings so that you can kind of check in with each other and make sure that everyone's okay. For some people, it could go to the extreme of having a same bank account, a shared bank account with people so that you can shop with that credit card. So I think there is a plethora of ways that collective housing can manifest. But I think for me, it has to do with being able to communicate in a way that will allow you to have that collaboration. So some people might say like there's like a house that I know where it's like jazz house like they don't really communicate much about what to clean or how the house is going to be but then they're always playing tunes you know so that kind of synchronicity comes by like being on that same page and then for my house for example we try to shop grocery shop together of course with different lifestyles changes sometimes that becomes more involved and sometimes less involved because for example with the summer we've decided 
you know, we don't eat as much communally, so we're going to shop separately. But we're always in constant communication. We're always trying to, like, do activities together, have some art jams and fires, or even, like, go play outside and hang out. I was wondering if you could maybe just say a little bit about who you are and how how you came to collective living. Yeah, it's been definitely a roller coaster ride in terms of the COVID situation. But in terms of collective housing, the reason why I guess it's been so fascinating to me is because by economic means is where I was like, I can't afford living on my own, so I need to find it. But beyond that superficial need, there was so much more that comes from collective houses right like what you're talking about Travis with the the care network and learning these skills that I feel like we have really neglected housing as a way of coalescing with people with the same beliefs as you to not only give you strength in what you believe and what you think is important but also to even have a political voice right that collective housing idea was brought to me through this fellow who had some wacky ideas, mind you. I mean, he thought that it was too densely packed in Vancouver, which I think is a very interesting notion within Vancouver where we think that we don't have space, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. It's rather the zoning is very different in Vancouver where people have enormous hidden backyards and gigantic residences but no one's willing to give that up right so all the kind of stacked housing ends up being on main arteries of the city so then I guess when the infrastructure has already been established to be housing that is I guess nuclear family oriented then the people who can't afford a nuclear family or uh, don't have one or don't have the money to buy a house in the first place, they need to start filling that space that is already available in ways that turn out to look like a collective house. Hmm. That kind of sense of community is not built because we've started to learn how to atomize ourselves into these cubicles where we get food delivered to our door and we don't have to interact with any strangers because we don't have to see them and we don't have to recognize them. I think that's a really frightening society to be directed towards. So the only form of resistance that I can see to people erasing the real work of care is by actually starting to care themselves and connect with people and realize that every person in a community can provide care for one another. And it doesn't have to fall on the shoulders of one specific group of people. We all can learn that skill. I'm learning so much every day living with people. As I started realizing how important it is to have a collective that you can stand behind, And when you're able to have shared values, your will is a lot easier to act. Our society of spectacle has led us to imagine that we are atomized beings and we're powerless. Collective housing was an answer to my fear of becoming just an individual player in a big corporate game. (laughs) I love what you said, that word atomizing. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about the pressures that we're facing to like atomize our like social structures and our relationships. So I guess speaking from a perspective of a student as well as teacher, what I find really fascinating is that we use Zoom and Microsoft Teams to try to educate 
And what's really unfortunate about Zoom is that it's so disengaging that people kind of tap out. But a lot of the school boards and educational institutions still believe that it is equivalent to in-class studies or that you can treat it the same way. But every teacher that I've spoken to can 100% say it's different because people aren't inspired to learn unless they're with friends comparing questions and be like, what does this mean? You know, the most engaging classroom is when you get to communicate and try out your ideas and see if they're wrong or right. And so I think that atomization and what I speak of is when we're all boxed into our own rooms and we don't share a public space to communicate. And so what I feel that does to people is that it really extenuates class differences, first of all, and also reduces empathy. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> I think it definitely did. Reduces empathy. That one really, really resonates. And because everything is moving online, it's a very different experience of connecting with people over Zoom versus in person. Empathy requires an embodiment to an extent, right? And Zoom is very much a, a disembodiment or can be a disembodiment, you know, when we're relating to someone. And like bringing this back around to collective living, I definitely see this trend of people being able to live more isolated because things are moving on to Zoom, because things are moving online, because work and education is becoming remote. And so that remoteness is this trend of actually like disembodiment from face-to-face -face interaction, which inherently means that we're missing being physically present, having an embodied connection to each other. Which is crazy. What are the things that you miss connecting with people that are just complete random strangers or like the people that are outside of your immediate bubble? I think pre-COVID, there was a security and going into being in public spaces and, and meeting people that way, you know, meeting friends of friends was commonplace. You see someone multiple different times in a public space and you're like, oh, that person's a familiar face to the point where even if you haven't actually met them, they're just right on that periphery, right? And those connections can be made in, in a very like happenstance way online. It's different. I wouldn't say that's not, it's not impossible, but it's definitely different. It, and, it's, and it's not nearly as convenient or accessible in terms of the passerby mutual acknowledgement type of situations that I thrive thrived off of at least like especially with the queer community just dropping into arts events that I knew I could walk to like when I was off my shift or like passing through whatever event or like dance party or things are going on and then the amount of people I've never even like had one-on-one -on -one hangouts with but we would be able to share these moments of I acknowledge you and I value you and like I see you for all that your colors that you are. There's there's so I see now especially like that's something that brought so much value to to me and validating my identity and my expression and not feeling alone and now with online spaces that kind of exists with Zoom parties <laughs> but it's definitely not the same. No. It's interesting because it almost feels like it's a space that's more curated and there's less space for spontaneity. And I think that's something that I've been speaking to someone who actually does a lot of work with the farmers unions. Um, but she was saying that human relations are super messy, right? So when we learn to have these perfectly curated spaces where we hang out and we know what to expect we don't have those tools to actually address the messiness of human relationships in general and it's interesting mm. to see that in students 
and how angry they get when I don't give them the answer. And that's kind of what the world should be like, but we're trying to control it. Literally, though. Just a thought. <laughs> it's crazy. I was wondering if you could talk about like your background. You, you spoke a little bit of how you how you sort of came to collective living as like an affordable housing model and then it was you discovered that it was a lot more than that I was wondering if you could just maybe talk a little bit more about that that transition from oh this is like an affordable housing model to like what else did it become for you going to school and being like wow I'm accruing so much debt (laughs) I needed to make sure that I wasn't spending more than I could really really afford you know so that led me to like try to find a group of friends that I vibe with. Maybe there's some similar stories out there. But then starting to live together, it was interesting to navigate through people's habits. And when you live with someone, you start to see so much more into their like worlds, their belief systems, their narratives. And those narratives also start to seep into how you narrate your reality, right? Which narratives might have a scary connotation sometimes, but I think, you know, also a narrator in a story makes for a good story, right? So in that sense, we could be very empowered by these or be harmed by them. So learning how to navigate through other people's stories and then joining stories it made me grow a lot. It made my recipe book become thicker. <laughs> it was a lot of experiences coming together. When it truly became something super important to me was when I made a new collective home and we named it. <laughs> we called it the Monsters Moonshine House. Monster House, yeah, because we had this big gathering called the monstrous moonshine barbecue where people told stories around the fire and we ate garlic because we were planting garlic at the time and this theatrical idea that failed because the garden then didn't work but essentially we collaborated to make something meaningful out of just planting garlic in the ground and it was just it was cathartic maybe more synergistic in a sense I was like this is when I understood how powerful multiple minds to an idea can be and how exciting and exhilarating it is and so I guess being creative with other people is just so much more fulfilling than just kind of being stowed away what you said about like your cookbook getting thicker that alone the visualization and like what that represents It's just so real. Where did the moonshine part of that name come from? I think someone actually did bring some moonshine. And it was like, god awful. (laughs) Uh, But it was like, we got so drunk off of it. It was ridiculous. But it was because we wanted to plan the planting of the garlic around the new moon because it's a root vegetable. Um, So then, (laughs) yeah, um, you can get kind of, more healthy root-based plants in the new moon and we plant the other ones in the full moon that go outside of the ground yeah it sounds like superstition but um there was like an agronomist in peru who actually wanted to prove this this kind of belief that had been shared amongst many farmers and he was able to prove that by grafting in the full moon they would graft better than if they were crafted in cool. trees. Wow. Astrobiology. <laughs> Astrobiology <laughs> indeed, dude. That was a Wikipedia wormhole that I went down. <laughs> wow. No way, yo. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Three days later. I love what you said about you know, living collectively, it's our own story interfacing with other people's stories. And and when we live together, 
those boundaries or the walls or you know the structural differences between one person's story and our story begin to there there just aren't as many you know you're like sharing the same bathroom if someone else wakes up at the same time they're making noise you're probably gonna even your sleep schedules you know get affected and you know you might see each other eat together you're talking together and communicating on on a frequency that is much much higher than if you weren't living together and just by way of that you get a chance to look into an experience part of their story in a very intimate way and vice versa as well the engagement and the impact that inevitably that has on you it's deep and as you said it can be harmful and it can be also challenging and it can also be really beneficial and oftentimes it's all of those things right the messiness back again at it (laughs) yeah that's like the real messiness of of bringing so many disparate elements together into one place that process kind of catalyzes transformation in a way an interesting word that you brought up was intimacy very interesting because I feel like in our society there's so much that's associated with intimacy to romance but the fact that there's more types of relationships than just you know romantic relationships yeah totally collectives I definitely see as examples of family building a lot of the time and that is a type of intimacy that some people don't even get from their own families. And yeah, what you were saying about how romanticized intimacy often is in our society, whereas the other forms of intimacy that we can build with one another, like romantic intimacy can't fill in all the parts of ourselves, I think, ever. And oftentimes we rely on romantic relationships for all of these supports that it can sometimes be overwhelming. We've forgotten we can rely on communities or our families or our chosen families for for some of that. Yeah, and I think that kind of harkens back to some of our original guiding questions around collective living. How do we create a culture of belonging and a sense of community? And I think that now more than ever, because of COVID and because of the mounting crises that we're facing that are very often divisive and and become barriers to relationships, how do we find a sense of belonging within this era, but also within our local day-to-day experiences and relationships and also ourselves. Personally, I I know that there have been times when, especially during COVID and recently of, okay, like all these crises feel really challenging to my identity, to how I behave, to being able to find joy in life. Those Those are conflicts that we're dealing with right now. How is collective living in all our experiences maybe been a a response to the growing crises or challenges that are unique to our generation? One thing that comes to mind is affordability. Definitely. We kind of touched on that. But the other part is you were talking about belonging. And I think for people finding that belonging in a home with other people who share values in itself is so it's transformative because you become empowered by those values that may have gone unseen in other aspects of life. Even just thinking of, I don't know if either of you have seen Paris is Burning, but it's the film about voguing and ballroom culture in New York back in the 60s. A house, a house, let's see, let's see if we can put it down sharply. They're families. You can say that, they're families. For a lot of children who 
don't have families. But this is the new meaning of family. The hippies had families. And no one thought nothing about it. It wasn't a question of a man and a woman and children, which we grew up knowing as a family. It's a question of a group of human beings in a mutual bond. Houses were created as a way for queer, POC, black, trans women, and also, yeah, black gay men. They were created as a survival mechanism in order to survive a variety of crises, including a pandemic of AIDS. My name is Angie Extravaganza, and I am the mother of the House of Extravaganza. I always offer advice, you know, I mean, as far as what I know and what I've been through in gay life, you know, I ran away from my house when I was 14, and I've learned all sorts of things, good and bad, and how to survive in gay world, you know, it's kind of hard. Looking at how those family units they created were able to support them to still be living their life their lives brilliantly and with so much joy and support for one another. And I just think about that often because it's a form of collective living, I think. But it's, it's not often like portrayed that way because it's just very the way the film and voguing culture is shown. It's very much focused on the dancing and the balls and like the extravagance. But there is a root of, yeah, family building and collective building within that that I think is also symbolic of what many other queer people try and find when they they move into the city and when they tr move into collectives and even just artists when they're finding sp space with other artists and they're able to co-create. Almost like a form of securing those inklings that you had that no one else validated or ignored, which can be really frightening, I think. But I think what's also really interesting with collective houses is the fact that sometimes even within a collective, there could be those disagreements. And being within a community, those contradictions can crop up. Learning how to deal with those contradictions is also a very important learning aspect of creating a family, I guess, because the values might we might believe had been shared might not necessarily be there. And so learning to navigate through those difficult times is also something that is not reflected in our political sphere. We can't even have a conversation with each of the sides, you know. So the fact that we do that within a collective home is not only something empowering to strengthen a community, but it's also great practice for politics or changing the fabric of our society, perhaps. It's challenging. Yeah, I feel like you're touching on conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. And where else do we learn those? Where do we get to practice that habit? Yeah, well, one saying that an old friend said was, well, he, for the longest time, we didn't fight. He's like, I'm worried about our friendship because we haven't fought yet. <laughs> so, like, I don't know if we can actually stay friends, you know? Like, what if we just oh. fight and then we'll never be friends again? But it's like, when you can go through a conflict with your friend, that's when you know it's a real friendship. Mm. I love that. I think that being able to, yeah, hold those differences and still, still know and recognize the common ground between two people who superficially on some level might disagree on something or even fight about and have conflict over something but ultimately still recognizing the common humanity you know I probably held a grudge against uh, on my conflict avoidant right and then I'm like working on that and so like someone doesn't do their dishes or or did something that annoyed me like a pet peeve or something like that and I'll be annoyed at them and yet I'm still going to like cook dinner for them, <laughs> clean the house. And when I do grocery shopping, I'll like still buy stuff for them specifically because I know what they <laughs> like. And, and, I, and I might, and I might be thinking about them and being like, ah, this person's annoying the hell, the hell out of me right now. And I'm like, 
cooking them a, a nice family dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and it's like, there's, I don't know, there's something that's, that's such like a family totally. thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> like living with people, like, you know, I don't know if you go home and like live with your parents, it's such a challenge <laughs> to like go back and live in family. And yet there's still a mutual intention to maintain this basic relationship based on like sharing food or resources, sort of like a mutual aid relationship being like, yeah, you know, I might disagree with you. We might have different politics. You might annoy me sometimes. I might need space from you a lot. And yet I'm still going to like share my food with you. I'm still going to like hear your voice out when we make decisions. I'm still going to like make space and time to to listen to what's what you're going through in a house meeting. Keep trying to improve that relationship regardless of where mm-hmm. it's at. It's almost as if a house can be like a physical manifestation of the intangible culture of our society. Hmm. But it's so often, if it's not that, then it might be through our occupation or our workplace or maybe also our hobbies. But when it's from our homes, there's an added sense of I feel like I use this word too much, but maybe like intimacy and also like vulnerability even. Yeah, I think, yeah, that makes me curious about the idea of yeah belonging to something that's larger than ourselves and how that a lot of people think of that as, as a way to have a sense of purpose to serve your community. And what is that community, right? That could be your workplace, the people you live with or a culture or your family or whatever that is. And I think that you know, the people you live with can definitely be that and collective housing can definitely be that. Before you said part of the value that you saw in, in living collectively was having this chosen family. You didn't have family nearby. Yeah, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that sense of chosen family and how that collective housing might meet that need for family when you're not near your blood family. I guess in terms of chosen family, there's ways that the people that I'm living with have shown me support. What's wild about living so far away from family is that you don't have somebody to like continuously update on what's going on. I call my mom and my dad on the phone quite a bit, but it's very different from that raw and fresh emotion. Just come home from a really good show or a fantastic interview for a job or like a a devastating fail of a test or something like that. And then talking to somebody about it immediately when that emotion is raw is so different. That chosen family became the space where like, I don't know, emotions were were passed around like a ball it's interesting because when it's a phone call and you have ideas of what you're going to communicate is so different from someone reacting to that vibration that you're moving at because of something that happened to you and then them playing off of that whether it's like yeah that was fucked up or like oh that's so crazy and like getting hyped up about it and getting excited like rolling off of that energy to like create jokes or break the negativity through humor I think the chosen family were the people that were able to reflect who I was what I was experiencing and then put it in a different light and it felt less scripted because they were there not you had to reach out to prepare to tell them about something. The sense of family was formulated because there's not as much of a filter or script and sharing that space is what allows that to happen. Yeah, I love that. I think it kind of reminds me of, uh, I'm probably speaking beyond my knowledge base, but like in in a cell, there's all these different organelles and through that fluid, they like pass messages to each other just by way of being in the same soup. And I think that living in a house with someone, that definitely happens all the time. You know, inevitably, we 
share the same emotions or or whatever someone else is feeling. And also literally with COVID, we're actually sharing (laughs) the same air. And obviously during COVID, that's become problematic. But I think there's also like a, there's a physical conversation that's happening, even if you're not necessarily having these intentional conversations or check-ins with your housemates, you're definitely receiving and giving information to them just by way of being in the same household, whether directly or indirectly. And that definitely influences us. What was wild is that even if it's something that's subconscious, what we could also do is be conscious of how we're subconsciously sending messages to elaborate people can choose to ride the wave of, I guess, subconscious conversations and engage with it or choose to shut it out. I've seen places where my friend's roommates don't communicate whatsoever, but that doesn't mean that that subconscious communication isn't happening. It's just, is not brought into the forefront so that it can nurture the conversation. There's so much going on, but yet they never talk. Yeah, there's definitely a strong sense when you walk into a house, there's all these cues that are ushering you uh, into a conversation or into a space or to to eat this or eat that. And there's something really, really powerful about that, I think. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned before was was the atomization of kind of these like social structures or the atomization of our compassion by way of these like larger trends towards online engagement towards maybe remote social mediums of our phones of zoom social media and then simultaneously these pressures to get a one-bedroom place in a condo or to to sort of individualize your space and isolate yourself while training physical engagement for maybe online engagement or remote engagement. I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Everything is becoming more and more about your private space. Even peering into someone's window of their cell phone seems very invasive at times because it's such a personalized world. I guess what can be really frightening is that we start to lean further and further into the world of abstraction and what that changes our society to be like is to want more control of outcome and so it's interesting to kind of communicate even with this random (laughs) random fellow just came up to me at JJB telling me he's like yeah I'm really frustrated I was like what are you frustrated about and he's like yeah there's someone who's just so stuck in their ways and they don't want to change their mind it led me to the same conversation of atomized people. The fact that we're so used to knowing what's coming next, that when there is a moment that there's something that doesn't fit our conception of reality, we've lost the facilities to receive that. And I think what collective housing does is allow us to train those tools to acknowledge that people are unexpected. Things are never predictable. And having fun with the process of composting the shit that we have, (laughs) kind of stuck in in our mind state, I think is something that collective housing does because there are times that we're gonna have fits of emotion that come from a past that are projected into the present, the hurts from our past that might have never been resolved, that because someone was able to make a space for it, can finally be healed. And I think when you live with people, you love them, right? I don't know, I love my roommates. You love them no matter how difficult the times could be and I feel like when you're able to love beyond the struggles that you're encountering with these people that's when you're able to help one another through the processing of the emotions that 
were never addressed because society never made the space. Yeah, a lot of things are landing. What you said about loving each other for the process as opposed to the outcomes or the what you're expecting out of one another. Because with the way the world is and how people form their beliefs even, there's almost never a sure outcome. Even when we sign into these contracts with one another in a lease, that's one way of securing it, but it's also, yeah, it's also a piece of paper. And the behind that piece of paper, it's the real people that are we building a relationship with them or at least trying to have that communication instead of just sitting back and having that expectation that they're paying their rent and that this is just a mutual agreement to cohabit in a shared space also what you said about giving space to compost the shit (laughs) which i feel like people don't have that often even going back to what you were saying about the guy in the coffee shop being like oh i can't change this person's mind on something it's so easy nowadays for us to block the people we disagree with leading to that atomization we were just talking about and not giving space for the feelings around that disagreement to be aired out or yeah composted with one another and have that have that discourse that might lead to there still being a disagreement but still mutual values that that are underneath that it's challenging to learn how to do that. So challenging. That's like one of the great challenges, right? Is to like love your family. Right. <laughs> like number one, love yourself. Number two, love your family. Like whether that be blood or chosen, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Two greatest At challenges. The end of the day, there's ways that we'll be able to share narratives. And then when there's a contradiction within those narratives, but you share the same context with those different narratives. Conflict arises. What to do with that conflict? There's never an answer. <laughs> so then when students come up to me and be like, Miss Barry, what is the answer? It's like, you know, like, this is the only time in your life that you're going to actually have someone with the answer. <laughs> because at the end of the day, whatever shit that you call and is wrong, you're going to have to deal with it later. that's so ridiculous because they're so upset when I have open-ended questions and I tell them I actually don't know and they're like but you're the teacher (laughs) no life is life's the teacher (laughs) how old are your students anywhere from 12 to 17 18 yeah my my little sister is just turned 15 Mm. and then this past year she's been asking me a lot of questions that I don't have the answer for. (laughs) And then I can tell she gets visibly annoyed. And then I'm like, does it annoy you that you've grown up and you realize adults don't have all the answers? (laughs) We're still (laughs) trying to figure all this out. And she was like, yes, it's very annoying. (laughs) Well, I mean, we've been raised in a system where blue is blue and square is square. (laughs) The system has all the answers for us. That's how we've grown up. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if we like turn the tables, raise kids where they don't expect a hard answer. I wonder how that would change their society. Yeah. I think they would learn to create the answers, right? Mm. I grew up pretty like passive socially. I've always been very keen at looking for answers outside of myself. And I think in the past, I don't know, I think I've had a gradual progression of realizing of trending towards the opposite of realizing oh wow the harder I look for answers outside of myself the harder they are to find and the more I look inward towards answers so it's just as complex but I feel like the power that I have over myself allows me to be at home with the answers with my own answers 
and participate in that process more. Mm, sounds like a challenge. <laughs> finding the answers within. Finding the answers within and then living together and then finding the answers together and co-creating the answers, mm-hmm. being a participant in that process rather than just the recipient of that process, which I think for a lot of us personally, you know, being educated in an institution, it can often feel like you are just the recipient of the process. There's the teacher-student power relationship. The student is not teaching the teacher. The teacher is teaching the student. And there's that one-way flow of knowledge from the institutional system to the recipient, which is the student. The actual reality is that kids teach us so much. Kids are teaching us about the way of the future. They're teaching us how to heal. They're teaching us, you know, they're bypassing problems that adults are still dealing with. But I think what's really interesting to think about is boundaries and knowing where you stop and where another person begins. And I feel like when you share communal space, it starts to get really strange because sometimes what they want is what you want. And it's interesting to see how someone's needs can also become your needs and how to like navigate through those things. That's a great question. You know, as I age and get older into my adulthood, there's this, there's definitely almost like an expectation, but also I I do feel it a natural desire to want to have more control over my space, to diverge or to express my individuality in a certain way that might not necessarily conform with my housemates, for instance. I don't want to outgrow my connection to community at the same time, right? I think that is one of the the biggest challenges of collective living and one of the biggest reasons why people choose not to live collectively, to, to have their own space, to have that control and space to express their lifestyle as an individual without the interruption. I think it's really important to continue to train and practice our ability to deal with strenuous things. And and I also think we see the effect of that in suburbia or yeah, suburban neighborhoods nowadays where people will age out with their families. At least this is the situation here in White Rock where it's lots of these really big homes. And even though they have a lot of space that could probably be shared or rented out to folks, they would rather choose not to go through that process of, yeah, sharing because of the of the energy that that can take. And also the process of how to do that, a lot of people aren't even familiar with outside of sharing with their own family, maybe. But I feel like perhaps that's also an impact of the consumer-based society that we live in, that we have these small treats and dopamine hits that allow us to kind of ignore the deep-seated dissatisfaction of loneliness, because at least we have these nice things. We have the nice silverware and the beautiful table mats and the very beautiful garden, but the type of richness of satisfaction from a community I don't think could ever be replaced but if you stop doing the work for it then those small hits of dopamine become satisfactory enough because working towards and training to be able to gain that rich fulfillment of community is so much further away that reward is so much more delayed I don't know if that resonates with you but I feel like I have the same sentiment for example with like eating um, and exercising also I would even argue like going back to cell metaphors the bacteria our gut bacteria that we have is based off of whatever food we've recently eaten and so it takes our body to recognize this new bacteria, recognize it as healthy, as something that we want, and 
to allow the propagation or cultivation of that to spread throughout our bodies and to use that as an energy source. Yeah, yeah it's so interconnected. That's a, such a great analogy. <laughs> our body takes time. And I think that the temporality of our bodies and like satisfaction run at a very different scale in comparison to ideas. Because ideas are so flitting. To be able to have a good meaning, you have to continue to feed it to really be like embodied or to live in some fertile fulfillment. It takes a buildup. Can I ask quickly, like, what are the instruments played in your house? Upstairs, Alex plays the guitar. And I play double bass, piano. And I guess sometimes I jump on the drums. And Tobias sometimes lives with me. So he plays a saxophone, clarinet, accordion, cavaquinho, guitar, piano, and bass. Amazing. Yeah, I got a new double bass, yo. I'm so excited. Wow. Thank you, Julia, for this conversation. And hope we get to chat again and jam with you soon. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. No, that sounds so sarcastic. Wait, let me do it again. Thank you so much for having the conversation with me. Uh, looking forward to seeing y'all in the streets. <laughs> that sounds awful. In the streets. <laughs> I think that's good enough. The Coming Home Podcast is independently written and co-produced by George Birking, me, Travis Clifford, and Danya Clark. We also thank Adrienne, Evan Daniel, and Aiden Logans for audio support. And especially thank you, our listeners, for joining us. Catch you next time.